I hope you brought your Bibles today. If you did, open up to Mark chapter 4. If you didn't, get your phone out, put in airplane mode, and open up to Mark chapter 4. I, uh, you might notice this morning that I don't have someone with me. Did anybody notice that? I have six children I've been taking care of this weekend. Dana uh, was at a ladies' retreat. Yeah, thank you for that clap. I appreciate that. If, they're survi- if they survive by 6 o'clock tonight, then you can start clapping. But, uh, well, there was uh, a time when there was an 8-year-old girl in Michigan who was invited to a church. And it was a Baptist church, and she went to a program. And, uh, and she went to that children's program, and for the first time, she heard the gospel. And after a couple of weeks, someone once gave an invitation to this young girl and said, if you would like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, we would love to talk to you. And she was a little scared to talk to someone. So after everyone left, she got down in her little pew and she prayed and she prayed to trust Christ. And that girl's name was Dana Maria, at the time, McDonald. It's my wife. You know, it's interesting to think about what was planted in her heart back at that time was a little seed of the word of God. In fact, I have a seed in my pocket and it's so small, I can't even find it. <laughs> but, but you think about the, a seed and the potential that that seed has. And, and that seed was sown... The word of God was sown in that little girl's heart. I don't know if you know her family and her history, but she didn't grow up in a Christian home. But look what she is today. And it's, in, it's interesting to think about God's word like a seed and what God can do with his word. I mean, as I stand in front of you today, I think about the fact that I'm scattering seed. And there is so much potential with what God can do. Let's ask God to work and bless his word this morning. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me? God, Father, we are so thankful that you're at work in this world by your spirit, through your word. I pray this morning, the powerful word of God will pierce hearts and show us our our attitudes, and show us the intents of our hearts. And God will reveal to us who you are. I pray you will transform lives today with the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Mark chapter 4 is where we're at this morning. And we're going to finish up the message from last week. Mark chapter 4 is all about Jesus teaching his disciples how true disciples listen and respond to the word. That's okay, Norm. You can get it if you need to. That's okay. Don't worry about it. I wouldn't embarrass anyone else, but there's something about him. It's kind of like a target there. <laughs> How did she know I didn't clean the house yet? So that's our job this afternoon. Try to make it look like we didn't really live there. Well, where were we at? We're actually supposed to be listening to God's word, right? 
And that's what Mark chapter 4 is all about. It's about listening to God's word. And not just listening with your ears, but actually responding with your heart. And Jesus outlines six responses a disciple should have toward his word. And last week we went through three of those. Number one was we saw a disciple listens to the word with full devotion. Jesus taught this truth in four parables. Or with, I'm sorry, with one parable about four soils. This parable taught that God's primary work in this world is done through his word. And it's sown in the hearts of people. I'm not, I'm not going to go through the whole parable again. But if you remember the four soils, that parable, it talked about the fact that every one of those soils, every one of those hearts heard God's word. But only one heard it and surrendered to it with full submission. And so he taught that. And if you look down in Mark chapter 1. Or chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And then he explained that in Mark 4, 13 through 20. And then next we learn that Jesus taught the disciple understands the word by divine illumination. And we saw that in verses 10 through 12. And essentially, Jesus was explaining why he taught in parables. And there was two reasons. One, a parable is a great way to remember truth. And number two, he was actually teaching in parables to judge Israel for their rejection of him. He clearly gave them the gospel and told them the truth. And they took that revelation and rejected it. And God said, Jesus said, because of that, because you've rejected me and you've opposed me, he's going to withhold the truth from them. And that ultimately that rejection was a part of God's plan, wasn't it? Because those were the people who ended up going to Jerusalem and crucifying him. And then verses 21 through 23, we saw a true disciple listens to the word of God, interpreting the scriptures in light of Jesus. Look down in verse 21. We said in verse 21 that Jesus was speaking of a lamp and that lamp was himself. And so he said to them, is a lamp. And we said that could be translated the lamp because there's a definite article in front of lamp. So the lamp or is Jesus the lamp? Is the lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? And so Jesus asked this question just in case there was maybe a misunderstanding with his disciples thinking, well, Jesus came into this world in an undercover mission. He's hiding himself and his purposes. Well, that's not completely true. Actually, Jesus came to reveal. He's, he's the truth and he's the light and he came to reveal. He came to reveal the purpose and the work of God. And so verse 23, he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And again, this was a call to listen to God's word with full devotion, but also with perception. So you can perceive, spiritually perceive what God's word is talking about. And so today we're going to look at the next three responses that we should have to God's word. So how should a disciple respond to God's word? A disciple perceives through divine measure, through divine measure. Look down in verse 24. Jesus was continuing his teaching and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. The word pay attention there literally means to see or to look at, or the idea is perceive, perceive what you hear or perceive God's word. See the spiritual realities behind the words of 
God. Jesus' instruction reminds me of how a teacher in a classroom instructs her or his students, right? They're teaching maybe uh, math or some kind of concept they want them to know. And you can imagine a child sitting there and they're struggling with it and they're trying to figure it out. And so the teacher comes by and many times, what does the student want? They just want the answer, right? If you're a teacher, have you experienced that? And you're trying to, you know, help the student and, and you're like, pay attention, perceive, get understanding, right? And they're just like, what's the answer, you know? It's kind of what Jesus is doing. You have all these people listening to him. Now the disciples are listening to him. He's like, guys, listen, don't just hear me, but actually understand the spiritual realities. You see, God's word helps us to understand reality, right? Reality in our world. And so verse 24 starts with an imperative to have spiritual perception and attention. And to teach this part, he actually steps away from doing parables and he tells a proverb. So you can see that proverb in verse 24. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And you might read that and say, what is that talking about? Well, that's a proverb. It's actually very similar to Proverbs we have. In fact, there's Proverbs um, probably across the world and across societies throughout time that have had this proverb. It's kind of this idea. You will only benefit from what, um, you'll only benefit from something to the degree of effort you put into it. So, So the idea is you get in, you get out, sorry, you get out what you put in. Did I say that right? You get out what you put in. So some of you are realizing that now when you're thinking about your New Year's resolution and you get on the scale and you, why am I overweight still? Like, why have I not lost it? And then your spouse or your friend comes and says, oh, you haven't really been putting the exercise in you should. Like, you're still eating those donuts. And so you, what you realize is that you, what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it, right? And that's what Jesus is essentially saying. It's a, it's a truism of life. In fact, there's a fun little comic, Calvin and Hobbes. Anyone like Calvin and Hobbes? I remember this Calvin and Hobbes. This was, you know, I don't know. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, so it's kind of like a 90s thing. He's kind of like a millennial, if you want to say it that way. And uh, this is a fun uh, little illustration of this principle. His teacher says, you have a question, Calvin? He says, yes. What assurance do I have that this education is adequately preparing me for the 21st century? So there he is. He is a millennial. And he says, am I getting the skills I'll need to effectively complete Uh, compete in a tough global economy. I want a high paying job when I get out of here. I want opportunity. She says, in that case, young man, I suggest you start working harder. What you get out of school depends on what you put in it. He says, oh, then forget it. (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean to rip on millennials again, okay? You can rip on me if you want to as well. We probably have the same problem. But with with tongue in cheek here, Calvin wants to be prepared for the future without the work. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. There's effort that has to be put into understanding God's word, and God will also give you that perception. So look at verse 24. He says, with the measure you use. So notice that phrase, with the measure you use. In other words, with the effort that you put into hearing, more will be added to you. 
So the degree to which you embrace God's word and seek to live the word by faith is the degree to which you will be given a measure of understanding and, and grace thereby to understand and live it. And so that's why I say perceives in divine measure. God must give you spiritual perception, but he gives it to you in measure. And so the amount of concentration and commitment that you have right now to the word as you're listening to it, and then as you go throughout the week and you study the word, then God in return gives you a divine blessing so you can see what it means and you can know how to apply it. With the measure, look down in verse 24 again, with the measure you use, the effort you put into it, it will be measured to you. So this is a divine passive, which means that God is the one that's giving you this understanding. And listen, look at the rest of it, and still more will be added to you. So it's not just equal to, but actually in abundance and beyond. You know, sometimes people come to a service like this and they say, well, I don't really get anything out of Sunday or I'm not really being fed. I haven't heard anyone say that, but sometimes people say that. And or sometimes people come into like a counseling session, a biblical counseling session, and they'll say, I've tried the, the Bible thing. It doesn't work for me. Like that didn't work for me. Or some people say, I, I, I see this book, but this, this hasn't helped my marriage and my parenting and my life. It's, and they, they see God's word as just as kind of this ancient book to be set aside. It doesn't really pertain to my life. But God's word, has, God's word and God's uh, words here have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of his son and the word of God. And so some people like to come to a service like this or like to consider God's word and they are lazy spiritually and they want God to work in their life, but they're not willing to put the effort in. Kind of reminds me of a time when uh, I would take tests and I would take some, you know, maybe really difficult tests and I've got the paper in front of me, my pencil's right in front of me and the teacher says, go. And I say, Lord, help me to remember what I studied. And then I say, no, I didn't really study very much. Lord, help me to get the right answers. Lord, help me to guess well, right? You know what's interesting? I probably didn't get very many good grades that way. Sometimes actually I did, you know, but that was luck right there. But the point is, is that you probably are going to fail a test if you're not going to study for it. And some people want to approach God that way, right? It's like they're in the midst of a great trial, a big difficulty, and they're like, God, help me. And they have no preparation. And so we must have divine spiritual perception given to us by God, but it's given to us as you diligently pursue Christ. And I think we also have to be careful about considering God's word as just this intellectual book, right? Okay, I want to study God's word. And from that, God's, when we study God's word, we're studying a person. Like we're actually developing a relationship and a closer relationship with the Lord. So this isn't just an intellectual pursuit. To perceive the word of God is to know Christ more. To have a closer relationship with him and experience his joy in a fuller way. So look at verse 25. It says, to those who have, that is spiritual understanding that's given to you by God, more will be given. And from the one who has not, this is a reference to those who rejected Jesus and the revelation he gave to them, even what he has will be taken away. Well, what did they have? Well, God gave them some level of understanding, 
And God says, listen, that is going to be taken away. In other words, the judgment that they would face is that God will remove from them the blessing of understanding and perception of God's word so that they would not be able then to follow through by faith and be forgiven. So the principle that Jesus shared here is the degree to which you pursue understanding and devotion to God through his word is the degree to which God will grant that to you and even beyond that. And But if you reject God or approach God in a lazy and self-centered way, having an open hand saying, God, give me, but I'm not willing to pursue you, then God gives judgment to you by concealing to you the actual realities of this world in his word. But what a promise for us. Isn't that a great promise for us as, as believers? As we pursue the Lord and we pursue the word, that God actually will give us the understanding we need to be able to follow him by faith. So what does this mean for Christians? I I thought of a couple things. Number one, I think it means that God has so much more for us than we could even imagine. We have our experience right now and we think that's the limit of it. But God actually says, if you dig into my word and you pursue me, I have so much more joy in here for you. I have so much more for life for you in here, of, of life in here for you, if you were to pursue me. If we understood truly what Christ has for us, our lives would be radically changed. I think it also means that your love for Christ has the potential to be so much richer and so much more wonderful. The blessing of knowing Jesus is the greatest joy of life. And he says, listen, there is so much joy in here for you. And also I think it means that your spiritual growth is progressive. It's always growing. You're, you're not going to get the spiritual zap. As some people come to a service like this and they're like, okay, I'm going to sing these songs, you know, and I'm waiting for that spiritual zap from God. Or they go to a, a counseling time, and I had this happen many times where people sit there and they're like, okay, here's my problems. So where's the magic answer? Where's it at in the Bible? Just give that to me so I can know the magic. But actually, he presents here, it's in divine measure. There's a progressive uh, growth that God has for us. In fact, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, I didn't say it up there. Philippians 3, verse 12 says, Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. And if Paul the apostle right here didn't think he attained, we shouldn't either. And the idea is that we are always Growing And God save us from that mindset that is apathetic, that thinks that we're okay. We don't need any more. And also, I think it means that divine measure takes your effort. Like God is the one who is working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's the one that must give you understanding. But clearly here, Jesus taught there's a human responsibility that you have with the measure you use. Spiritual growth is not a walk on the beach, right? Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you get this magic touch where life is perfect and everything's easy. It's actually very difficult and it takes spiritual work. Sometimes Christians want to just come on Sunday morning and and think that's it. And they think, well, why am I not growing? You know, why is my marriage not improving? You got to put effort into it. You got to put effort into it. And that's why we have things like the weekend to remember coming up in March. And some people are maybe wondering, why, why would you want to do something like that? 
I think it's because marriages take a lot of work. And it's good. Some of you are planning on coming, and I hope you sign up. I think, oh, I should say this. Today's like, tomorrow's the last day to get the discount. There you go. That's in there. But, but something like this is very valuable, I think, for, for this church and for you all as married couples, those of you who are married or engaged, because marriage takes a lot of hard work. It's not easy, right? And spiritually growing together as a couple takes a lot of hard work. And so we must remember the divine measure takes your effort. In fact, I think about Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. For this I toil. So here's Paul. Like if, any, if life should have been easy for any super Christian, it should have been him, right? And it wasn't, if you read his epistles. Struggling. Do you feel like you're struggling? You ever have that? Like feel lonely? Maybe your sin is pounding you. Maybe life is pounding. He's struggling with all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. So what you see here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, is the same thing you see in Mark chapter 4. Paul struggles. He toils. And the energy and the effort that he's putting in is God's grace that's at work within him. And he goes forward trusting the grace of God. The degree to which you listen to God's word, you, you concentrate on it, and you, you by faith seek God, is the degree to which, in return, God will give you spiritual blessing even more. So do you want to know God? In a greater way, the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then next, how does a disciple respond to God's word? A disciple grows by spiritual means. Look at verse 26. This is a parable of the scattered seeds. I don't know if that's actually what it's called, but I decided to call it that. Verse 26, and he said, another parable. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Remember the seed above was the word and then the ground were the hearts of people. So in this illustration, the seed is being spread and it's on good ground, right? Because it's actually springing up and it's going to be harvested. So look at verse 27. The farmer, he, the farmer sleeps and rises at night and the seed sprouts and it grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. Now, notice those two phrases. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. Those are two key phrases to help you understand this parable. In verse 28, he continues, The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So here you have a faithful farmer. I don't know if you knew this, but I grew up in Indiana. My grandpa was a farmer. He's 94 years old. I think he's 94. Maybe he's older than that. You know, sometimes you get at a certain age, and you kind of stay there for a couple years. But he was a farmer. He actually still does that. I mean, he doesn't, he, uh, he leases out his land, but he likes to get in the tractor still and go out there and go on the tractor. But you think I'd know a lot about farming, but I don't. I lost that generational gap there, I guess. But here is a man who's doing his farmerly duties. Can you say that? Farmerly? I made that up too. But he scatters seeds in the ground, seed on the ground. It goes in the good soil. And what does he do? Pretty much nothing, right? He scatters the seed. Maybe he tends to it by watering it. I guess if it's in a big, seed, a big field, he probably doesn't do that. And then in the end, he waits for it to come up, and then he harvests it. Now, in our society, he puts a bunch of chemicals out there and all that, but we're keeping simple here to the story. 
Many theologians look at this and have different interpretations. And it is kind of hard, actually. If you look at this story, it's difficult to understand what is this actually speaking about because Jesus never explains it. But I think the key is, if you look in verse 13, verse 13, Jesus actually says, do you not understand this parable? So he's talking to his disciples. So that, that was the parable of the soils. And he says, how then will you understand all the parables? I think he's given a hint here to say, in order to understand the rest of these parables, understand the parable of the soils, which is the seed is the word of God, the soil are the hearts of people, and the plant represents the productive spiritual life God designed you to have. And so I think the intent of the story is found in those two phrases. The farmer doesn't know how the plant springs up and grows, and also the earth produces by itself. And so these two phrases contain the key to understanding the point of this parable, which was what? Well, the point is the effectual working of a seed is hidden. It's unknown to the farmer. And because there's, it's just a natural process, right? When you put that seed in the ground there and he might do some things, but ultimately he doesn't really know how it grows. It just does. And then it comes up and he harvests it. And so there was this natural process that, that takes place that's hidden and that's unknown and you might say it this way it's automated it just happens and i think the spiritual correlation that jesus wants us to understand the spiritual parallel is the effectual working of god's word in the heart of a person is somewhat hidden because it's in a person right but it's also spiritual the seed has a natural process that causes it to grow and the seed of the word of God has a spiritual process that causes it to grow. And so here we, as, as workers of God, have a responsibility to spread the seed. That's a pastor's job. It's also every one of us. That's all of our jobs in here. We're to spread the seed. And that's just a normal human responsibility. As a Christian, we're supposed to do that and we're supposed to harvest. But the actual growth of the seed is up to God. In fact... Here's a 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, I planted the seed of the word of God. Paulus watered it, but who caused it to grow? God. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So there's this, there's this part of the seed of the word of God that goes into a heart of a person. We can't see it because it's within a person. But God causes it. He's the one that causes it to grow. And so I did a little research and studied about seeds. And I thought, well, how much do we really know about seeds? You know, how they grow. You know what's interesting? We still don't know some things. In fact, I read this, uh, that most seeds wait at least a year before they start to grow. And what exactly each seed is waiting for is only known to that seed. In other words... If you walk out in a field, below you are thousands of seeds, but they're not all growing. They're all alive in some sense. They're alive. They're ready to grow. But there's a process that takes place, a combination of temperature, moisture, light, and many other things that's required to convince the seed to jump off the deep end and sprout, right? And, there's, and, and the scientists have got it so they can get it to go. But how, why it all works that way, there's still an unknown. So it's kind of a question mark. Why is that? What does it actually happen that way? And here's another one. Scientists uh, tried to discover about 200 years ago about why does, it, does a seed, when it's planted in the ground, 
uh, have roots that grow down and then the, and it springs up? Like, why does it know, how does it know which way's up and which way's down? Well, they discovered that actually gravity, it, it knows gravity, so somehow it does that. But they have since tried to discover, like, how does it know what's up and down? Like, how do they, how does it know there's a gravity? Like, in us, we have these little crystals in our ears or whatever, like, that help us know what, which way's up and which way's down. But what about a plant? You know what they know about that? They still don't know why a plant, how a plant knows up from down and how it knows that there's gravity. My point is, is that, the, in fact, let me read this. This is kind of a quote from this with a, about maybe it would help you see that. I'm not just making this stuff up. At the end of this article, it says, what do plants, uh, what do we know about plants? Strangely, this, the idea that it's, that it knows uh, about gravity is a puzzle and we don't know for sure how plants do it. So which is interesting to think about because still in our day and age, we have all this technology. There's a whole science behind the farming industry, right? But we still have a mystery behind some sense what, how plants grow. And Jesus was saying here, there's a mystery behind the spiritual growth that takes place in the heart of a person because it's a spiritual work. So Paul says that God is the one that causes things to grow, to causes the word to grow in your heart in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. So as believers, we should put in our effort. We should help other people spiritually. We can't just sit back and be lazy. But the reality is we're just farmers. All I am is a farmer. There's, there's nothing that I can do in this city, in this place, to to do any kind of amazing spiritual work. And sometimes you come into a church like this, especially when you're a new pastor, what are you going to do to make this church grow? It's like, well, I guess just try to be faithful, right? In fact, actually, that's what the Bible says. It's, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And that's what God requires of all of us. You can't cause your children to spiritually grow. I heard a story about a Bible counselor that was sitting in a room with uh, a mother and she said, my children will follow Christ if it's the last thing I do. And this counselor looked at this woman and said, ma'am, you can give them God's word and you can love them. But God is the one that has to work in their heart. And see, that's the reality. We have to put our, our, ourselves in the, have the correct, I should say, we should have the correct perspective and put ourselves in the correct place. Realizing that we just faithfully sow the word and we pray and God is the one that does the work. And it's a spiritual work. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all, that's believers with unveiled face. The idea is that we can actually see, spiritually see the truth. We behold the glory of God. And so it's the idea is that we're looking in God's word and we see who God is in his word. And that causes us to be transformed into that image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to the next. So there it's progressive. And what causes this growth for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So notice how the word of God and the spirit of God come together to change you to be more like Jesus. Many times I'll sit with in premarital counseling sessions with young couples that are about to be married. And I'll say, why are you getting married? And so they have different reasons why, you know, I looked into his eyes and realized he's the one I want to be with the rest of my life. You know, and I said, what about five years? You're going to look into his eyes and realize you don't want to be with him anymore. So what about after that? Like, why, why do you want to be married? And 
One of the reasons I give them, there's a couple of reasons, and I, could, I won't go through those this morning, but one of the reasons I tell them that God, one of the purposes of God in marriage is that he is going to help you become more like Jesus Christ in this marriage. And there's nothing more like living with another sinner to help you become more like Jesus Christ. <laughs> you either become more like a sinner or you become more like Jesus Christ. And there's, there's a work that God can do by his spirit through his word that can help you to become more like Christ. And we should, as believers, be experiencing that on a regular basis. So when we're in God's word, you ever have this happen? You're in God's word and you're, you're, you're studying it and you're like, oh, that is just what I needed today. Like, have you had that? And you're like, that, I mean, I, didn't, I did not go, come to this passage for that reason, but God, I needed that. Maybe there's a Bible passage you memorized at one time and you're struggling with something and you're like, Lord, help me. And that passage comes to your mind. You're like, oh, that's exactly what I need. See, that's a spiritual work that's taking place right there. Remember when I've told this probably story before, I don't really remember, but I I remember when Isabel was 26 weeks and she was still in Dana's, uh, Dana was still pregnant with her. We're going to be in the hospital there in Greenville, St. Francis. Dana was laying on the hospital bed. And we didn't have any idea that Isabel was going to be born the next day. And so this, this is about three months before she was supposed to be born. And so, you know, I'm, I'm in the hospital. I kind of joke around a little bit, have fun, like have fun with the nurses and stuff. And so I'm having fun, trying to cheer Dana up a little bit. We knew there were some complications, some problems. We didn't know exactly the extent of it. I was super ignorant, too, because I decided not to read any books because I figured right before she has the baby, then I'll read about it, right? So I'm, you know, standing there. Well, and our... Doctor, interesting enough, our doctor had just got out of um, residency. So what Dana was experiencing wasn't something that she had, been exper- she had experienced before. So she was brand new. And all of a sudden, I looked down, and the bed was wet. And I said, did her water break? And honestly, I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> but the doctor's face went white. And she looked at us, and she said, uh, maybe, yes. And she ran out of the room, and all of a sudden, nurses and doctors and everyone were in the room, and they had to transport Dana to another hospital. So, you know, we're right there, and this doctor's telling us, I, I don't know, this, babies don't survive sometimes like this. We ended up finding out later on it was a placental abruption, which means blood comes into the actual um, place where the baby is. So I don't even still know the terminology. And so this is a very dangerous thing, and they, she was like, your baby's going to be born maybe today, and she might die. And so you're, you're standing here realizing this, and right next to me was a Gideon Bible, and I picked it up, and right away the Lord brought Isaiah 26, 3 and 4 to my mind, where he says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, for the Lord is an everlasting rock. And I was trying to think, what, what can I give Dana? What can help her? I mean, this is, this is kind of devastating right now. What can we have that can help? And, you know, it's all these things going through your mind. And automatically I thought, what is something God has given me? And it's his word. And this verse just came to my mind. A verse that we had memorized earlier. Dana and I had memorized this verse. So I wrote it on a card to her. I gave it to her. They wheeled her out. They put her in an ambulance all by herself because they wouldn't allow me to go with her for whatever reason. And so on the way to the hospital, the next hospital, she had this card with her. And there's a comforting power in that passage. There was something about that passage that as she was wheeled out, it was like, I don't know what's going to happen, but there was this overwhelming peace that you couldn't explain. And it was like our fee at that moment, we decided to stand on the rock of Jesus. And I was still scared. I still didn't know the future, but 
the power of the word of God by the spirit of God did a spiritual work in our hearts and allowed us to trust God in a very uncertain time. And then last of all, how did a disciple respond to God's word? A disciple expects the unexpected. Verse 30. And he said, with another parable, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed. So he keeps with the farming theme here, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds. The mustard seed isn't actually the smallest in the entire world, but in that region is the smallest seed. And it was the one the disciples would have been familiar with. In fact, if you think about it, they were at the Sea of Galilee there, and that's where those mustard plants grew. So we don't know this, but it could have been Jesus was speaking to these disciples and they were actually looking at a mustard plant. And he might have been referring to that and saying, listen, this seed is the small seed that you guys know about here. It's a small seed. In verse 32, he says, yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out branches so the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. The mustard plant typically grows to about 5 to 10 feet. And it actually doesn't typically have branches that are big enough for birds to, to, to rest in and be in. So when you read this right here, you might think, well, did Jesus not know what he was talking about? Absolutely not. What Jesus was, was saying here, I would say this, the disciples, they, they would have been looking at this plant and they would have been seeing what Jesus is talking about, that small seed, the potential of that small seed, and they would have understood his point which was this. Here was Jesus' point. The mustard plant can grow from a small seed and surpass even the normal expectations of a mustard plant. So so that it can grow beyond the 5 to 10 feet where it can actually expand out to the point where it's like a tree and birds of the air are able to come and rest in its branch. I mean, you think about a seed. I mean, just the potential of that thing growing is amazing. And in fact, that growing into what it's supposed to be. But what Jesus was saying here is not only would it grow into what it's supposed to be, but actually it will go far beyond anything you can imagine. And that is the power of God's word. In fact, if you look at the end there, verse 32, Jesus says, the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. Now, what's that talking about? There's the potential that it's just a way for Jesus to show that it's going to be a really big tree. Some people have different ideas. Some people think that it refers to Satan and demons being a part of the church. Some people think it's talking about um, unbelievers in the church. But I particularly agree with some other uh, commentaries. The, um, a man named James Edwards writes this. Old Testament prophets occasionally use the image of birds nesting in branches to allude to the inclusion of Gentiles in God's chosen nation. Which the idea is this, is that God has his chosen people, Israel, and in the Old Testament he said that Gentiles would be included. So what Jesus could be potentially referring to and hinting at here is it's not just going to include Israel. The kingdom of God will actually allow Gentiles, that are people who are not Jewish, to come into the kingdom of God. Does it mean that? 
It could potentially could. I don't really know. Jesus isn't real clear about that. If you go to passages like Daniel chapter 4, verse 20, that's what it's referring to here. Remember that story where King Nebuchadnezzar was going to be judged, and so there is a, a tree that was going to grow up, and the idea is that he's going to be, um, have a, a large nation, and God's going to bless him, and other nations will be blessed because of him. I'm not going to read through these passages, but I'll show them up there for sake of time. Ezekiel refers to the blessing of the Messiah coming like a, like a tender plant shooting up to be a tall tree, and the, the birds will come from different places and will rest in it. So the idea is that the Gentiles will be a part of that. So you can study that. You can determine what you think it is. But the idea that Jesus is trying to get across here is that there's something that's going to happen with God's word, or I should say the potential of God's word that will amaze you. It's supernatural. It's unexpected. I mean, just even think about Jesus and what he's doing at this moment in Mark. He's preaching the gospel, and then he's talking to disciples, but it's Jesus by himself, really. There's a couple of disciples that truly understand and are truly going to follow him. Then he's crucified, and they all run away as cowards. And so I imagine at that moment, maybe some of his disciples thought, what about this word that's supposed to spring up? But then Peter gets up, and what does he do? He preaches the gospel. Thousands are saved. And as the seed continues to be spread, the gospel continues to go forward. And the word of God springs up in the hearts of people to now we see the gospel all around the globe. So the point of this parable is that the seed of God's word can do an amazing, supernatural, unexpected work in the hearts of people. So how should we, as a lighthouse, respond to God's word? We need to expect God to do astonishing things through his word. I think about this past week, if you read in the news about New York State and the law they passed, did you read about that? And they legalized abortion up to the time of birth, 40 weeks. And I think even after a baby is born, if the baby was born alive and, was mis- and they were trying to abort the baby, the baby could still be killed. I mean, just to think about the, the, how evil that is, how terrible that is. It's so sad. When you think about something like that, I don't know about you, but it's like it almost brings tears to my eyes to think about little children in the womb that are being killed. Sometimes you think about California. People are like, oh, California is so godless. And it is, right? But when you think about places like New York State and California, what comes to your mind? Like, can the kingdom of God penetrate a place like that? Like, can the seeds of the word of God be planted in a place like godless California and something amazing and powerful take place here? And I I talk to you as people who are living in California. And I feel like every week, this is my conversation I'm having with people. Please stay for the gospel, right? And one of the things I really want you to think about is make decisions in life based upon the gospel. And you you might automatically in your mind think, man, I can't wait to, I want to escape some kind of Christian utopia somewhere, you know? Well, that's called heaven, right? So if that's what you're thinking, it's like, I got to go to this Christian utopia, like get me out of this liberal place. 
No, like stay here and see God do an amazing work through his word. You only have a short time. Like you only have a couple of years left and then you're going to die. Take the seed of God's word and plant it into the hearts of people and see the work that God can do. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In fact, we are all, those of us in here who are believers in Christ, we are all amazing testimonies to that work of God, right? I mean, we could go around and we people we could stand up and say, what, what was life like for you before you came to Christ? And how is it possible that God did a work in your heart and you are who you are today? We would say only because God did something unexpected and amazing through the power of the word of God. So let's not, as believers, let's not lose sight on what we have right here in front of us. This small seed of God's word can spring up. It can change your life. It can change your marriage. It can change your parenting. It can change your perspective on this world. And most importantly, it can change your eternity. Right? And it can do that to millions of people as well. So let's keep reading, keep studying, keep believing, keep applying, and expecting God to do radical things in the hearts of people. And of course, first, that starts with us. And then let's spread it to others. So how should we respond to God's word? It's my prayer for us, Lighthouse, that we as a church faithfully gather here on Sundays, but also that we faithfully go out and we spend quality time with God alone. So this week, as you do that, how should you respond to God's word? Well, we must listen to God's word as devoted hearers. We must pray that God will give us the understanding of the spirit. We must see Jesus as the one who the scriptures reveal. We must put all of our, our grace-dependent effort into knowing God as we dig in and study the scriptures. We must remember the work of God is a spiritual one. We must trust the Spirit of God. Spirit of God, show me, help me to live for you. We must listen to God's word and follow it, expecting God to do amazing things. God has an amazing seed for us to go sow. Let's do that faithfully as his workers in his field. Let's pray. Father, I am reminded of your word that we read earlier where Paul said he watered, someone else, or he planted, someone else watered, You're the one who causes things to grow. So we cry out to you, asking that you will help us as a body of Christ, as individuals within this body of Christ, to grow spiritually. We don't want to be where we're at right now. We want to progress to be more like your son, Jesus. We want to be changed to be more like the image of Christ. And God, we want to see this community. We want to see this godless state transformed by the gospel. We sometimes can watch news and we can see people and we can 
have fear, maybe anxiety, or maybe even despair. Oh, God, save us from that. Actually give us a correct perspective, and that is we have something that's more powerful than anything else. We have something that can change the heart of a person. We have the word of God. And help us by faith to wield it in love. Give us humble, submissive hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.